0: This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. This
1: conversation is another cracking entry into the Chronicles of Filth ladies and gents you'll hear from Waz Sargenson. If you are unfamiliar, is Cradle of Filth's second ever drummer, and also their fourth, as he returned after Nick Barker left the group... Was recorded the majority of the cuts on the 1999 release DP From the Cradle to Enslave. Now, as regular listeners have come to expect, there is plenty of deep insight into the machinations of the group. Was delivers. It's all on the table, and I'm very appreciative that he was willing to share his experience and observations from his time in the band and his ongoing association. In addition to Cradle of Filth, Woz was, was a part of Extreme Noise Terror, so we discuss his tenure in that group as well. For those listening via the podcast apps before the chat starts, you will hear the EP's title track from The Cradle to Enslave, and for those on YouTube, let's cut to the conversation right now. Let's go. intensely fascinated with uh, the era of Cradle of Filth that you're a part of. And to set the scene from my conversations with people over YouTube comments from the other interviews and conversations I should say that I've posted, there seems to be two cohorts. There's people like me who grew up in the 90s who were there when Gen 2, black metal kind of first blossomed. So Emperor, Immortal, Satirical and Cradle of Filth, these sort of bands. And then we sort of dropped off, didn't we? And sort of life, you know, we got into our late 20s, 30s, now 40s. And I'm I'm fortunate that I've sort of come back around in my 40s and I've been able to reignite my interest again, if you like. But there's a whole swathe of us that are sort of from that 90s era and we have a very different take on yeah. Cradle of Filth than somebody who got into them post-Midian, post-2000. If you like the the goth, totally, I yeah. It, yeah, I call it the Marilyn Manson goth aspect of it, which I have yeah. no interest in whatsoever. <laughs> I must say, it doesn't doesn't well, appeal uh, to my yeah. sensibilities. Yeah,
0: and and as as we we'll, as we'll talk, it's um, I can relate to what you're saying, but it's kind of different for me as well. But I, I, I agree with you. It's um, it's certainly um, the people that are into the scene back then.
2: Mm.
0: well even before then there's so many different sort of takes on it and it's like i always say there's stuff that i don't like uh about metal now but that's not them being shit that's me it's 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 my interest has changed Mm. it doesn't mean that just because i don't get it doesn't mean that you know all these people are wrong it's just you know we evolve and it depends when you come across music if you come across music at a certain time when you're young it can affect you or or i in a in a different way than people um what am i trying to say basically i think when you come when you discover an album or a band at that point that album means something more to you than it does to people who've been listening to it for years do you know what i mean and it's so true
1: yeah such a great point it's, it's, it's weird Mm. your your involvement in cradle is largely hidden but is crucial okay so to set the scene for the audience people listening you performed on the from the cradle to enslaved ep on the tracks the track the title track from the cradle to enslave death comes ripping and also sleepless the anathema cover now yeah. you, you certainly had the pedigree to join cradle of filth Uh, After working with Robin in December Moon and also uh, another killer release. I love this one here the Extreme Noise Terror album, (laughs) Damage 381. Uh, I've spoken, yeah, I've spoken to Barney about that album. Now, I I, I want to cover your time in Extreme Noise Terror too because you were part of a fascinating episode there for that group. But, you know, the the reason that we have come together, of
2: course, (laughs) uh,
1: is Cradle. Now, just to give you some background, you've probably seen, though, that I've had lengthy conversations with Stuart, with Nick, Mm. uh, keyboard player uh, Greg Moffat, Ben Ryan, the original keyboard
0: player. Yeah, I listened to a bit, uh, the the Ben one. After you got in contact with me, I checked out, <clears throat> Excuse me, a little bit of Ben's yeah. um, podcast with you, yeah, yeah,
1: lovely fellow, very see. easy to talk to, and gave a lot of mm-hmm. insight into those early days. Uh, a, awesome big, guy. A, a big, a uh, big entry in my uh, my catalogue, if you like, is the chat that I had with Paul Alendo. Although for Paul's own reasons, we spoke for a couple of hours. He wanted me to remove or not broadcast any conversation around Cradle of He just wanted to focus on his newer outfit.
0: He's a, fun, he's a funny fucker, bless him.
1: <laughs> he's a lovely fella too, I've got to say. He uh, seriously. He, oh, he, he, yes, he, he gave me some amazing insight into the group, I've got to share. that. that I, I've got to say, I don't think anybody else would know. He just gave it all to yeah. me and then said, I don't want you to share that. And I will always respect that when I'm having conversations. Same yeah, thing with you, mate. You know. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. If, I, everything that I'm going to say, I'm happy for you to to broadcast unless I get to the point I'm saying it and I'm like, actually, shit, don't, don't broadcast that. But uh, there's no skeletons in the closet from my point of view. I think it's, you know, it is, I'm happy to talk about it, so. Mm.
1: And look, and I, I have had a superficial conversation with Danny for the show, but it was a part of a uh, the promotion for Cryptoriana. So we really weren't yeah. able to go deep, okay? We're only able to no. talk about touring plans, album, all the usual bullshit, yeah, you know?
0: Absolutely, I understand, yeah.
1: Your, your name has come up a couple of times and from what I understand you are, you are considered a valued contributor to the group from the player's perspective, which is very important. Now, now, my first question for you is you, uh, as I've mentioned, you had the pedigree to be in the band long-term. So did you, did you, were you bought into the band with the intentions of being there long-term as a tenured member or were you just bought in for the studio
0: episode? Right. So first of all, um, I was in the band, you didn't mention this, but I was in the band before they got signed originally. Uh-huh. Okay. So just after the TFD demo, Darren Gardner, the original drummer, left. I replaced him. I did um, maybe about 10 gigs with them. Uh, the, one of them's actually on YouTube where we supported Bolt Thrower. It was Bolt Thrower and Benediction and us on First without blowing my trumpet or our trumpet. That was right at the time where Crater were just just about taking off. We blew the shit out of Benediction and Bolt Thrower. Both bands are great, but both bands were kind of uh, on a downward scale. Anyway, I'm... I'm, And this was just after TFD and just before Principal. Now, we were... We went into the studio to record what was going to be uh, an EP, a 12-inch, which would have came out before principal, <clears throat> that 12 inch never, never happened, never transpired. And shortly after that, Nick replaced me in the band. I've stayed in contact with, with everyone um, throughout my travels since then. And for, from the cradle to enslave, um, basically it was on the ropes prior. Well, Nick, Nick's tenure with the band was on the ropes. So just prior to that, um, Rob, literally lived over the road and I was in contact with Rob, um, anyway, for the December moon thing. Uh, and he was like, look, Nick, Nick's going to, Nick's going to leave. There's tensions in the band. Would you be up for doing it? And I was like, yeah, of course I would. So, but I knew that there wasn't, how am I going to say this? I knew that there wasn't much chance of that because they were literally playing a lot of shows. Um, and they had a lot going on. And I actually spoke to Faye at the time, and she was yeah. like, "Look, it's getting pretty hectic. Can you learn the set and just be ready so that that to me was absolutely ridiculous because i'm not I'm not the same drummer as Nick, right i my feet were never that fast, they still aren't. Uh, so I was very realistic in what I can do or mm. could do. Um, so I just I, looking back on it, it was ridiculous because, yeah. But anyway, so that was that was the deal. So I was on on standby, if you like. Uh that 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 call never happened. Obviously, Nick stayed in the band until a point where he left, um, where they weren't touring or didn't have any shows um planned. And mm-hmm. then I went to do uh From the Cradle of No Slave. Now I went in purely as a as a session guy. Um there was took I did those songs which were relatively, literal. I think we had a week's rehearsal and then we went and recorded it in Liverpool. Liverpool, Past yeah. Street Studios. Um, and I remember having this conversation. Again, where I'm sitting now in my house, you've got to get some context. Uh, we had Rob over the road. We had, um, there's a band called Annihilated from, from Ipswich. He lived across the street. We had Phil from Extreme Noise Terror just down the road. So literally, and Dan actually now lives around the corner from me. So this little square of Ipswich where I'm in, west side of Ipswich, was proper proper metal in those days. Anyway, I remember <laughs> speaking in, the, in a, a pub around the corner and Dan was like, well, you, do you want to do it? And I, I had to explain to him. I said, look, it's been, it was a good nearly 10 years since my first time with the band. And I said, look, I can't. I can't play like that. You know, Cruelty and the Beast is such a, I mean, it's a terrible production, but in terms of songwriting, in terms of what it is, it's such a monolith. It's such an awesome album. So my drumming style was very much, by that time, real, real kind of straight ahead, sort of simple. I used to refer to it uh, like Peter Chris, you know. Mm. I get the job done, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not bells and whistles like Nick was. I mean, Nick's playing and his, uh, that whole extreme metal playing was something that I and i I never forget, Dan, Dan was just like, well, it's just practice, isn't it? I'm like, yeah, it is just fucking practice, Dan, but we haven't got months for me to practice and get everything down. It's not about, it's just not possible, you know? And I remember there was a show that they did uh, at the Dynamo, which was the the one that was the show that was upcoming, and they got a guy called Dave Hersheimer to do that. Yeah, um, and I, I've I've not heard the uh, recordings, but I remember Rob getting back and he was just saying, "Oh, it's just horrible, it's just terrible." But I, like I say, I can't comment on that because I've not I've never heard it. But I just love the naivety of Dan saying, "Well, it's just practice, and it just you know put a few hours of your day aside and learn the songs." And I'm like, "Yeah, it is," but you know, you've got tours you've got an agenda everything's in place it's not as easy as that so i was offered the gig but i politely said i can't do it because simply because i couldn't play like that and i was honest with myself i thought you know looking back even looking back now i don't think that i you could argue that i could have put the hours in and worked hard yeah sure but you know as a drummer and as a fan of that type of music back in the day I know how meticulous these drum spotters listen to things. And they're like, oh, because I remember when I played in the Blood Divine, I used to get these people coming up to me after gigs, because I never got any women, because I was a drummer. And I'd get these drum spotters coming up and saying, oh, you, you did that differently then than you did on the album. Why? And I'm like, I don't know, mate. I've had a few pints. I just went up and enjoyed myself. I'm sorry yeah. that I played that fill wrong. But that, so I was very conscious of that. Um, but yeah, so that's how that worked out. Um, Obviously, I'm really pleased that I got to do the EP with them. I don't think that it's, I don't think that my work musically holds a candle to what Nick or what Adrian did, but I think that's part of its charm, you know, I think the part of the simplicity of it um, and the fact that it's one of their most popular songs, you know, I'm I'm pleased. So, yeah, sorry to ramble on around your question, but that's basically long and short of it.
1: No, it's awesome. No, ramble as much as you like. Um, I've got to give you mad props, so though. I remember when I first heard uh, From the Cradle to Enslave, I remember thinking, wow, doesn't Nick sound different? He seems to have done so. He's got more of a D-beat thing going on. You know, you know this sort of thing. And I loved it. And then when I found yeah, out it was you, <laughs> Red, you.
0: No, sorry. No, that's funny because you mentioned the D-beat thing. There's one thing that I've never been able to do properly is a classic D-beat. And I remember when I was in ENT, I tried to sort of work it out, and I'm like, nah, that's it, isn't it?" And Dean would be like, "No, nah, that's not it." So the Slayer, beat, the old Lombardo, you know, to get to get to, I'm yeah. fine with. And I played that differently to Nick, and I always thought that I played it better than Nick. I'm not saying I'm better than Nick in any other way, but you know, that 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 he was always a bit too quick on the triplet with the feet, in my opinion. Mm. But yeah, it's weird because. Yes. I mean, good. I mean, I, I, I like the fact that that was something, it was fresh for them. It was something new for them. Um, And obviously they went on with Adrian and Adrian's, I love Adrian. Adrian's fantastic.
1: Yeah, sorry, Adrian. Adrian no, it's all good, man. You to talk anytime. There's no worries whatsoever. Yes, we have. I like to say these aren't interviews, mate. These are conversations. That's important. me. Nice. A, a very important yeah. distinction. I've had to explain to a few listeners, especially to this Cradle of Filth chronicles, as I call them, um, that they're not interviews. They're conversations. We go wherever the conversation takes us. Okay, so wherever yeah, awesome. you, wherever you want to take it, go for it. There's it's a, you know, the atlas is our playground, so to speak. In that in that respect.
2: Brilliant.
1: I I feel like as though your exit was a sliding doors moment for the group, okay? Because you were there at a time when the group splintered, or certainly your tenure was. Whether you you're in the studio at the time when it happened, both times, (laughs) both times. Yeah, Yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, it's. I mean, well, the the from the cradle to enslave, the 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 splintering of the group that happened in from the cradle to enslave for an old fan like me was cataclysmic. OK, because mm. they went in a very different direction on Midian. I hear it. I know a lot of that, as I say, I know a lot of the people that have gotten to the band since uh, mm. year 2000, they think Midian is up here. But, I mean, for me, I remember first hearing it and thinking, what the hell's going on here? You've got, yeah. the, majest- you've got the majesty of Cradle, then you've got this sub-grinding shit on, on Midian. I've since come to appreciate it because I, I couldn't. will never, ever devalue Paul's contribution because he bloody carried that band for well over
0: a oh, decade. Yeah. And, and that's really interesting. Sorry to interrupt, because mm. when we, uh, when I left for the first time and they went on to do principal, and then the, uh, Paul, Ben and Paul, we all uh, did the Blood Divine. They were so, um, they weren't bitter, but there was very much, it was quite an acrimonious split. Mm. And Paul Allender was one of the most vocal about how, how he's, you know, had it with them. And I can't remember the details of what was said, but, you know, they were through. And then uh, when we, when the blood divine, well, Paul left the blood divine and then we disbanded shortly after that. um, And then all of a sudden, uh, Paul's back in Cradle and all of those things that he said and all of, you know, that was kind of by the by. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, you mentioned Midian. On the Midian tour, I played with a band called Christian Death. Supporting, awesome. supporting Cradle. So I was back with with Paul and Dan um, and obviously the Midian lineup. And I remember, you know, we just spent like three years in a band together. <clears throat> and I remember so, I didn't really talk to Paul much. He was just like, yeah, it's really good to be playing the old stuff again. I'm like, okay, cool. Well, you know, you were fucking, you fucking hated it when you when we were in the Blood <laughs> Divine. Uh, but I'm not I'm not slagging him off at all because you know you you in those days it was a case of you know he just wanted to play and he's a phenomenal guitar player absolutely phenomenal guitar player and I I think that's a, the the crux of it is he's got such a talent and it's just you know you just need to to try and channel that in the best way that he could and he did because he did well he did a fair few records with Cradle after that so. But yeah, um yeah, sorry. What you I I got you mid mid question again. Sorry, mate. No
1: dramas. <laughs> honestly, there's no no worries whatsoever. It's just a thrill to, to catch up and to gain your insight into these things. I mean, there's some great detail there you've just provided. But I mean when, when I talk about cataclysmic, the issue here is that of dark blood and fucking the the tune written by Stuart he's told me that was that was the direction that that was the song that was meant to be on the next cradle of filth album which was going to be a Clive Barker concept album okay so yeah. it was going to be a completely different beast potentially with you on drums moving forward it would have been the you know that old old 90s crew it might have had a bit you know a couple of albums yeah. in it after that but of course it went in a very different direction so that was the one song on the EP that you didn't play, on Adrian was drafted into play. So, can you recall the story around why you weren't on that track?
0: Um, yeah, I went in. We did the title track. We did the two covers. Um, at the time of recording, it was just going to be that. It was just going to be those three songs. Um, and then when it came out, they'd added a demo version of one song. I can't remember which song it was. I want to say. I can't remember with the a demo version uh, of Dark Blood and Fucking and another song. So it was more of an EP. But at the time we recorded that, um I I don't think there was any talk of it being more than those three songs. Okay. Um and certainly with the with the with the um the songs that were added, um I was not aware of those songs at all. Yeah, it's you a know? weird
1: it's a weird EP in that it has some some of the band's greatest material on it. Given of dark blood and fucking and from the cradle to Enslaver on there and also the cover the anathema cover I've spoken to one of the Kavanagh brothers about that tune, um, but it yeah it was a situation then and, and then right at the end you've got a, a funeral in Carpathia like a demo version or something. Yeah, Nick is Nick was not happy that that was on there at all. I remember, or Nick or well, Stewart, uh, one of the two. Yeah.
0: Well, see, this is the 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 other thing was I remember. I remember hearing the original version of Dusk, but not the version that everyone knows and loves now, but I remember hearing Dusk and Her Embrace with the principal lineup, the, yeah. the version that was not, that didn't see the light of day. Yeah. And it just fuck, it blew my fucking mind because uh, it was the most technical, most intricate music. Um, and obviously the whole thing with Cacophonous imploded. Uh, but I remember... Um, queen of winter thrown that's on vampire the version that was on that tape because i only it was only on the uh, a b-side of um a 90-minute tape that paul ryan had mm. i was like man, this just fucking incredible um and you know that music was just literally the most I could, if that had come out at the time as was planned it would have been a totally different I mean, hey, they're, they're not exactly unsuccessful, um, mm. but, yeah, that, I think that would have really um, blew, blew, blew things completely out of the water, you know. Yeah, well, the but
1: they, the, from the cradle to enslave EP, it just seemed to be even the video pandemonium, yeah, it it just it just to me looking back, it was a missed opportunity because it could have launched the band in, as I say, in an entirely different direction. The the video, the reason I say the video is a missed opportunity is because half of it's that bloody behind the scenes stuff, and the behind the scenes stuff is is not that interesting. Let's face it. <laughs> and I mean, it's the video itself is it's it's okay, you know, it's a bit of horror noir with a bit of porno shit thrown yeah. in, you know. Yeah. But it's, it doesn't stand the test of time, to be honest with you, when you look back on it. Let, look back on I wasn't it involved
0: in, I wasn't involved in the video um I I do you know what looking back on it I think it was a classic case of they signed to music for nations I think they put out I mean what was the first mfn release I think it was dusk wasn't it I, I don't oh, know You yeah, know. Yeah, better.
1: definitely yeah the, the, yeah, the um, second I, version I, with Stewart on it yeah
0: yeah and I think it was a case of look we need we need something to to for the stock gap so do an ep and then we'll do the next record I think it was a bit of you know, they had to put something out um, to, keep the, uh, to keep the wheels churning, as it were, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, what did Stu tell, my, my... Me? <laughs> what you tell me? He told me someone opened their fucking trap <laughs> and he, someone must have said something to the record company the record company said, that's a great idea. Now, he didn't say whether yeah. it was Danny or not, but I couldn't imagine it would be anybody else.
0: Well, who knows? And like, like I say, I mean, I was like Stuart. Stuart was always a bit, he was always a moody, moody guy, but in a nice way. Um, and it was imperative that him and Dan sometimes didn't see eye to eye. And when I came in, I mean, yeah. thinking about that, the cradle to enslave, we had Rob, I've known Rob, well, I haven't spoken to Rob for about 20 years, but that's another story. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew, I kind of grew up with Rob. Um, and obviously we had John or Jan. Yes. On the John. other game, yeah. who's an absolute, what a great guy, but a lunatic. And we had Stuart. Um, and you know when they, when him and Dan weren't, that they they weren't seeing eye to eye for that whole time, and it was a bit, it was a bit weird looking back on it. Oh, and we had Les as well. I love Les. Les, what a fucking great bloke, Les. Again, haven't seen him for a while, and only really saw him, in when I did that. You know, only really got to know him then.
1: Well, I think I think Stu, Nick, and Les, for an old fan like me, they're more or less the soul of the band. But because because of the way that. Dusk Sounded on tour because I saw them in 1997 when they came out and, and of course, Cruelty and then From the Cradle to Enslave. But look, you, you mentioned, you mentioned Robin in there. Okay. So you haven't spoken to him in, in decades, but um, tell tell me about your, your relationship with Robin. How did you first meet Robin? And, and obviously he was the, the, he was part of the reason I think why you were able to come into Cradle.
0: Yeah, I would, I would, um, I would say that, I mean, I, I mean, we. <laughs> yes and no, in the sense that the first person I met from that whole circle was, I was at college with Paul Ryan and I had my death metal band. He had his death metal band, Cradle of Filth. I thought he was a poser, pretender, lovely guy, <laughs> but I'm like, no one knows more about death metal than me. Come on, are you serious? We're in Ipswich. And I, he lent me the demo. It was fucking brilliant. And it went from there. Um, and, and, I, and I knew, I saw him and Dan like local hardcore gigs here so I knew of them um so we go back a long way I've known those guys since I was 15 um and Rob used to play in a thrash band here uh, Ipswich uh, called Malicious Intent and I was in another thrash band called Cardinal Sin so we were like in two rival kind of thrash bands and it's just you know the scene in Ipswich in that time was just fucking it was really good Really good. There was always there was always a band to go and see every, not maybe not every night, but certainly every weekend. So we kind of grew up going through the ranks, and then um, I can't remember how he got the the gig in Cradle Now I I honestly don't know because John was play a guy called John Pritchard was the original bass player, mm-hmm. nice guy. Um, I think that I said, I know a guy who plays bass, get Robin to play bass. I think, because I can't think how else it would have worked Mm. in the sense that he didn't know the Ryan brothers, well, at the time, Ben wasn't in the band, and he didn't know that side of, you know, the Hadley crew. Yep. But but I don't want to go on record saying that because that might be completely, that's just how my brain's working at the moment. So yeah, we 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 just played in loads of bands together, and then of course the December Moon thing came about, which was essentially, you know, him him writing all the music, and then we rehearsed and did the album. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I have a lot of respect, a lot of respect for Rob. A very talented guy. I again, he's another one that if that talent had been nurtured properly and effectively, I think. You know, he would have been, I don't know what he's doing now, but, you know, it would have been a different story. It's a shame, though yeah, really. He's
1: for, for such a huge presence. He's kind of a shadowy figure in the band's history, isn't he? Because um, I remember Nick, Nick told me that he felt that he didn't know how to tie up his shoelaces and stuff. So there's obviously, like, there's conflict in any band. God knows I've been in enough of them, my bloody self, to know that, that they, they can be... <laughs> very, very difficult and interesting places to be in at the best of times. And you're just trying to get to the either the end of a rehearsal or even worse, at the end of your bloody gig, just make it through intact without murdering one another at the end of it because of the mistakes that are made and even just people's attitude on stage or what have you. So there's never going to be, there should never be any judgement on that front, especially if people no. are referring to comments Um drawing on their memory and making comments on their memory, you know, but with your, for such an enormously talented group that was producing, you mentioned Paul Ryan there, gosh knows, I've tried to contact him a few times after having a chat with Ben, but it seems like... I can like, hook you up. Oh, brother, that would be magnificent if you could, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure he wouldn't mind, because uh, after the falling out again, they, they, him and Dan and the old label manager of Cacophonus, the guy called Neil, don't remember his surname... They re-released the... Um, what did they re-release? Something recently?
1: Uh, yeah, the, 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 the Dusk and her embraced the original scene version.
0: Yeah. yeah. But th- that on paper, years ago, that was never going to happen, you know? Because they were all yeah. like, oh, fucking Neil ripped us off or whatever. I, and to have those three, you know, and to I remember seeing the photo of Paul and Dan in the same room. I would never have put that, never have put that Um. together. There was, especially between... Paul and Nick as well they had a there's a lot of shit there and and again I I knew this would happen so if I go into one about that I'll I'll tell you what not to put in but yeah fucking hell
1: yeah (sighs) but but dysfunction seems to be the law but talent seems to be the rule okay so all, all of, like, Robin's contribution, the December Moon uh, album's great, fantastic stuff, and it's like, and then it just, poof, disappeared, and then he went back into Cradle, obviously. So yeah. with, with the December Moon thing, was there ever an opportunity to sort of follow up on that, or was it ever, Was it again, was it just going to be like a one-time deal, just something you did?
0: Um, it was difficult because Rob was in Cradle at the time, and I was in The Blood Divine at the time, and... To the end, towards the end of it, extreme noise terror as well. So, you had it wasn't just a question of me and Rob getting together and making an album, it was a question of well, Rob's signed to Music for Nations, I was signed to Peaceville Stroke, then which morphed into Music for Nations, and it was very difficult to find middle ground. Um, so it was just for that one album. Um, we did always want to do a second album, uh. And it never transpired uh, and then we, we lost contact and he, he moved away from Ipswich. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was difficult. It was tricky at the time because <coughs> on the, <coughs> excuse me, on Damage 381, it says that I appear courtesy of Music for Nations, which they had to, MFN insisted on that. Um, and it was funny because I remember being at MFN and Andy Black, the guy that worked there was like, well, Oh, we heard that December. Wait, that what a bloody brilliant album? We'd be interested in that. We'd be interested if you guys want to do another album. And that was that was like Well, yeah, that'd be great because we're we're on Mfn in different bands anyway. Mm. But again, it never materialised. And it that was right around the time of Rob was doing uh, Cruelty. Um, and yeah, just just never never materialised. Um, yeah, life,
1: life it, has other which, plans, doesn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it does. It does.
1: Yeah
0: what what's um what's
1: your take on Danny's role in the studio when you were there recording? because from what I understand, I mean, Stuart was really at the helm of the band at that time, certainly around the music. Danny, Danny, this has been said repeatedly across the interviews. Danny doesn't write music. he comes in after that's done. so from yeah. from your perspective that the music was being written, did Danny come over and say anything to you about your performance?
0: No. He would, well, in the rehearsal studio, it was just a question of, and again, I'm trying to go back in time and, and remember, we were just left to, to get on with it. And, um, you're right. Stuart was, you know, the guy that would be like, no, do that there and then do that there. And then we'll do this. And and Dan would just kind of, kind of hover. Um, he'd, he'd contribute if he felt he needed to, um, but, in the studio it was it was kind of left to us work workmen, you know mm, yeah um, but he never he was never like you know lording it up like a like some kind of maestro he was always he was always just Dan, and that 's the thing that 's the the difficulty that i um, it's different for me because, I, like I said, we were 15-year-old kids going to obituary and autopsy and all these great, you know, we were kids in in the scene and mm. we kind of, so he wouldn't ever come to me and be like, oh, I think maybe if I'd have stayed in the band and had a longer time with him, he probably would have done over time, but there was never that like, right, not being funny, da 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 it was. It was, we all still had the same relationship. And even to this day when I see him around, you know, it's just, it's just... Just you know, people that two guys that have known each other for a long time. Yeah, gotcha. You know,
2: yeah,
0: yeah. Um, but he was never tyrannical or um, or anything like that. The only time I remember him being a bit like that was when we were playing pubs. Literally, the the I remember uh, it's a fucking Audi. Do you have Audi in Australia? Yep.
1: Yeah, they're everywhere,
0: right. yeah. There's a lovely pub just just, just down in Witten. It's called Safe Harbor. And we Cradle played there a couple of times. And I remember we were played with this band called Shocker. And they were shocking, <laughs> like, proper, like proper heavy metal, you know, and that was the, with the hair and everything. And there was an argument of, as to who was going to go on last, who was going to headline. And I remember Dan saying, well, we're fucking, we're fucking signed. We should go on. We should go on last. This is a joke. And I remember him standing on a can as he did it and he fell flat on his ass. (laughs) That's the only time, the only time that I remember him ever having that kind of like, well, you know, that kind of ego thing. Yeah. Obviously, when he's had a few drinks, it could be a knob. And that's why he gets, you know, it's the reputation of, ah, met Dan in a club. He's a fucking dip. But, you know, we're all the same, aren't we? Mm -hmm. You know, in the sense that, in, put myself in his position I'm not surprised because you get all these knobs coming up to you sometimes especially in Ipswich back in the day you used to get all sorts of people coming up to him and they all want to chat to him and that was before the whole camera phone thing and you know I mean, but yeah, yeah so no cool. I can't say anything bad about Dan because he hasn't ever done anything that I've thought oh my god what a dick you know and if he did, I would be able to actually, you know what, there is, there is a fucking story. And that was on the Midian tour with Christian Death, where that he was on our bus and he was larrapped, he was fucked. And he, um, he spilt wine in, I can't remember whose bunk it was, yeah. but he was, you know, I was like, Dan, man, Dan, you just spilt fucking wine in so-and-so's bunk. And he was really apologetic, and you know, the next day he came and sorted it all out. And he was like, "I'm sorry, sorry." And I, I think that if had that have been, you know, someone from I don't know the crew or someone that was part of his entourage, I don't think it would have been dealt with with the respect that he did mm-hmm. with in that situation. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm I'm
1: digressing. I'm sorry. No, it's all important stuff, mate. It's all part of your part of the fabric of the band's history if you like, but it is interesting though, isn't it? He's the one tenured member over the past. It's it's getting into 30, 32 years, I think now, isn't it? 1990, oh. 1991. So, you know, so 32 years, he's the one consistent individual across that. There's been something in the vicinity. If, gosh, if you include touring members, not including touring members, it's over 40 tenured members. So people that have appeared in liner notes on the back of albums, if you buy the physical product or what have you, or if you go to Some
0: Wikipedia. Some of them didn't even exist. yet. Jared Demeter never existed. Yeah. You didn't know that. I
2: knew he that
0: yeah. <laughs> what what I think they got a photo of Robert made it those longer. Uh,
2: but I the thing is, was.
0: Andrew, the thing is <laughs> it's the thing is that you, you know, for, for Cradle to work, and indeed for a lot of metal bands to work, they need that figurehead. So you take the figurehead away, you take the you take Dan out of the equation, what have you got? You know, you've got you've not got you need Dan to be the spokesperson and the voice, and indeed you know creatively he's second to none lyrically absolutely brilliant and and I think that's that 's the crux of it in the sense that you can he's always been very very protected by you know com- record labels because they know that dan it could be Danny in the Phils right. Mm. Because it doesn't really matter who's playing drums, it doesn't really matter who's playing bass, um, as long as you've got that figurehead. And I think that's partly why he's lasted so long, not because and I'm not disrespecting his his passion and his commitment and you know his drive because that is obviously um, there for all to see. But I think just, just the way that the the um, the thing the whole thing's set up, you know that he has to, you know, without him there's no band, simple as that. From, from what
1: I gather, Faye's influence over the band after Cruelty, it just, it became huge, okay, and and I'm joined, this is me speculating and joining pieces of Jigsaw Puzzle, you know, the conversational Jigsaw yeah. Puzzle pieces together. The the opportunity, Marilyn Manson was huge at the time. We all remember 1998, 1999, Mechanical Animals, very different album to Antichrist Superstar, Mm. but it was very much, you saw both album covers, the Antichrist and the Mechanical Animals thing, both had Marilyn on front. It was after that explosion, if you like, and and the success of Cruelty, you started seeing merch just with Danny on the front. Danny's head, that, that wasn't around before. And I remember, because I've been into the group since 1996. So I remember, and I had the merch mm-hmm. through the, um, I can't remember the the merchandising company that they set up, but I had all of the really ornate um, merchandise. Wish I yeah. still had it. But, yeah. but you know, it, it seemed like there yeah. was a real drive, and I understand that it comes from Faye, to put Danny's smack bang in the middle. And, and part of the reason behind that was to sort of capitalise on the success of the, the Marilyn Manson thing. Is that, do you think I'm on track with that, with those thoughts?
0: Um, I, th- I think that's a fair, I think that they're fair comments. Um, in terms of a business, from a business point of view, it makes sense. Um, and particularly because there were so many lineup changes. If I was doing Faye's job, that's probably exactly what I would do. Because then you protect your product. Because if you've only got to look after one guy, make sure he's happy to run everything, mm. then it doesn't matter if you've got a revolving door. Um, so I would say, I would say, you You know, I would agree with you. I think you're pretty, from my point of view, I think you're pretty much spot on. I've only ever spoken to Faye once on the phone. And that was that phone call where she was like, look, just learn the set because things, it's going to go, it's going to go, it's going to go off with Nick. Yeah. That's the only time, I, the only dealing I've ever had with Faye. So, yeah, I can't really comment more than that, but I would say that you're pretty, that's a pretty um, <clears throat> informed view. I, th- I think I think that's certainly what it looks like. Well, again, I'm trying to have a conversation with her. I've
1: reached out to her on LinkedIn, but look, you know how it is, and especially recently with Kit passing away, there's no way I'd ever impose. But, you know, if she ever mm-hmm. listens to this, uh, God bless her and, and also Kit, but I'd, I'd love to have a conversation with her about these things because she would yeah. know she was there.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think enough, uh, well, I would gesture to say that enough water under the bridge has passed for her to give a, you know, kind of a no holds barred interview. And that's, that's not you fishing for, you know, gossip or tabloid journalism. It's just about filling in the gaps for, for the people that are genuinely interested in what happened, you know, around those yeah, times. It. Yeah. And it's... It is it is it is interesting, you know. I I get why it's interesting. Um, but yeah, I th- I think that would be um because no one really thinks about managers, do they? No one really sort of thinks. And she's probably got the best stories. She you know she's probably got better stories than all of us. Yeah, oh, I
1: reckon she'd be a wealth of. Uh... A heap of those sort of things, you know, and and as I say, <laughs> mate, she's on the bucket list. Believe me, as is um, Mike Exeter and John Fryer as well, both of them as well. But there, there is one more member of the band I wanted to ask you your opinion on about, and that's Sarah. Now, just before I get you to answer that, I have had email interactions with her. She will not talk about Cradle. She is. Black and white told me that she's it's done, it's over. She wasn't rude to me or anything like that, but she left me with uh, no alternative view than to say that pursuing her for conversation about this was was not going to happen unless she turns as it does a complete one eighty. So that's yes. it. What's your perspective on Sarah?
0: Uh, I think Sarah is fucking awesome. I think she's brilliant. Um, so again, I've only ever dealt with her. When I, I knew her when she was in the band, and I wasn't. Um, and again, like on the, on the Midian tour, she was doing the uh, backups. Um, I've always liked Sarah. I always got on. She's a she's um, she's a proper Essex girl, you know. <laughs> she's she's funny. Um, and she was doing a um, last time I spoke to her was. In my house and she was doing a solo album she wanted me to come and play drums and again that was i was out of i I wasn't you know playing at that time um so yeah that was last time i spoke to her on the phone she was talking about doing a madonna cover which i thought was quite novel Mm. she's very talented um and i i I don't know what went on between her and and the, the cradle machine um but yeah it's she kind of fell by the wayside but as a person she's awesome she's brilliant yeah look I've got my own
1: theories there and look she's mentioned it but she's alluded to there being issues from management with her weight and if 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 it is the case how fucking ridiculous in metal the one genre where you can free to be you I mean for god's sakes and and the floating head thing in the midian video it was it was ludicrous she was just marginalized wasn't she
0: Uh, Well, I don't know. Like, I don't know anything about that, but um, it wouldn't surprise me. But the thing is, the way she was, the way she handles herself on stage, and and the clothes that she wears uh, are um, fantastic. And you don't think, oh my god, you know, look, it's not the weight thing doesn't even come into it. She's, you know, she's beautiful for how she was, um, and how she presented, and how she sang that's the most important thing but the the image thing was i think at that time really on point in terms of how the how the band members looks okay maybe maybe not martin and is and maybe not actually maybe not uh adrian either with that all the pvc stuff oh but God, in yeah. terms of her her image with the band i think it's always been pretty good and if that if the weight thing was uh an issue for management then you're right it's absolutely pathetic rather than saying right okay how do we make the band look great for this next video or this next show whatever it is to go down that route is, is ridiculous um but then having said that i i, I you know she's such a she's, she's such a cool woman i don't know why that um she wouldn't just be like yeah i'll give you an interview but hey there's probably a lot of stuff that we don't know so
1: yeah yeah a lot of, uh, she she Look, she shared things, you know, from the perspective that um, she really isn't happy with some of the members of the group and she didn't want to yeah. go. And, like, she, she would go to the point where she would think she wanted to share stuff, but then she went, oh, I've gone too far, and then she'd pull back. And I'm, I'm like, well, there's always going to be respect here and in, in, in so far as share whatever you want, however you want, okay? Uh, which yeah. is why I didn't air uh, Paul's comments when he asked me not to. I've never been about that bullshit tabloid side of things. No. I'm just an old fan having conversations with members of a killer band. And, look, yeah, I mean, yeah. But I, I just from even back then you'd hear this beautiful voice on an album on the album with crucial you know her and uh was it uh the the young lady who the lady who was recently murdered by a bloody terrorist sorry i can't remember her name now is it martina the other singer that they had that was uh on the early stuff everybody's probably yelling at me saying you spoke about it with ben yes
0: i did i can't remember her name now um yeah i don't i don't i don't know how i know i know that in the early days they would have Sarah singing, but the voice, the spoken word um, parts, female parts, were done by another woman because, bless Sarah's Essex drawl, you know, just wouldn't work. Um, but I remember, being, I remember there being another, I want to say Danielle. Andrea. I don't know why. Andrea Meyer. So, yeah, it was on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, Andrea yeah, Meyer. I don't know. Yeah. I, so I mean I know I know that that
1: was a thing in the early days, but you know, yeah. Uh, but but Sarah was a crucial part of the band's sound, but she was never in the photos. So and and she and yeah. I, I did go to one meet and greet, one that they did in uh, on the back of Midi. And so what's that, two thousand and one? I think they were in Australia touring in that one there, and Sarah mm-hmm. wasn't there then. And I remember thinking it was a little bit odd because she was certainly on stage. Um, so I was like, she was a non-member of the band, but still participating in everything that yeah. a member would
0: yeah it's uh, yeah it's strange nay mention it. it is it is strange the only thing that i would put down to that is that she wasn't i mean correct me if i'm wrong um uh, but she wasn't on every song so a set um certainly in the earlier days would only feature her like popping up here and there um so i don't know i don't know why that wasn't a, i don't know why that was a um Maybe it was a management decision, I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Know. Unless unless it comes from,
1: one thing I will say, unless it comes from either Faye or Sarah, we'll never know 100% for sure. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know. Hey, I mentioned uh, Mike Exeter. So he was brought back in um, after the relative failure of the production on uh, Cruelty, something which I didn't hear at the time, I must confess. I thought the album, courtesy of the songs, just sounded brilliant. But... He, you worked with Mike, you must have, because he was behind the desk, I think, when you were recording. So what was it like working with a, with a fellow like Mike?
0: I can remember Mike Exeter and there was another guy there. Um, you probably know his name. Literally, Andrew, it was literally, we drove to, Rob and I drove up to Liverpool. We got the stuff together. I set up and I think everything was, everything was either done in a day or two days. Uh, I remember them being very nice guys. I remember them being very professional. Um, and the other guys had worked with them before. So it was a bit of a rapport there that, that they had that I didn't. Um, but that's about all I can say, to be honest, it's about all I can say. And dance
1: Brees, they were very good yeah, the other
0: yeah. for what, one day, two days. So.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I think he was crucial to the band's sound overall because you can hear what later albums sound like, and and I think John Fryer has been unfairly. I oh, will, you know, when you really deep dive into it, but but John Fryer is, is a legend. I mean, God Almighty, who hasn't he worked with? It's probably easy to put. So, but just for people who don't yeah. know who he is, you know, he's done many albums with Depeche Mode. Uh, I'm not saying he's responsible for that sound, but he was around through them crafting an yeah. incredible career. 9 inch nails yeah. he had pretty hate machine okay that revolutionized god everything was different after right. pretty hate machine wasn't it but um yeah. did you have anything to do with john at all or was it was that no
0: nothing to do with him at all jesus it sounded Sorry. it no.
1: sounded magnificent though didn't it from the cradle to the song though to when you heard it were you just like oh my god look listen to that
0: yeah i and you know what it was it was it was Stuart. it was Stuart's riff, you know that, that that main riff with the little guitar melody I knew that it was a it was a massive riff and Stuart I mean again in terms of what he did on cruelty the riffs the fucking riffs now this is the other thing Andrew that you need to when I was in <coughs> cradle first time around I was proper death metal all the way. So when this black metal stuff started coming around okay we put the face paint on the stuff but th- I was very much in the camp of this, this new stuff, you know, Emperor, Burzum, Dark Throne. It wasn't what I considered black metal. Uh, black metal to me was Venom, you know, Early Frost, Merciful Fate, Bathory, Hellhammer. And I didn't really like or get into this trend uh, of, you know, this second wave of black metal. And I really couldn't connect with it. Um, certainly not in the same way that everyone else did. Uh, other guys in the band did. Obviously, they were they were right to embrace that wave. But you know, sorry, what was it? What was the question? Sorry, I'm rambling again. Oh nice. I got there from. So- Oh, we're just talking about how,
1: how I, I just love the sound. You know, we're talking about John Fryer, and you've you've yeah. answered the question by talking about the riff, which is killer, because I agree with you. You know, I yeah. mean, without a killer riff, listen to those old Bathory albums, like the first Bathory album, and you know, this yeah. the, you know, In League with Satan, these sort of albums. I mean, you listen to them, they sound to be honest, they sound like shit, but they they, they don't because of the riffs that are on there. And people forget yeah. that metal is about the riff.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And and that was that that was the real focal part of that song. I knew that it was um I knew that it was I knew that whatever they did had to be significant at that time. Mm. So it was I knew what I was doing was going to be um like lauded, you know. Um so yeah, it was the Riff that did it. Uh the I knew that the, the Riff made the song. So
1: you mentioned you had some positive things to say about John, and I've got to say, given my conversations, many conversations with the older members, that's rare. Um, <laughs> your take on John is that he's, he's a hilarious fella, but did you see him contribute much Love. in the
0: studio?
2: Um,
0: I think as much as anyone else. I don't. Uh, obviously, the um, we we did one song. Uh, and two covers so he would always be larking around always be you know the 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 funny guy for want of a better better description Mm. but did he contribute much I I think he did yeah I, I think it would be unfair to say that he didn't contribute I certainly remember him throwing suggestions in and you know the good thing about John is that when you when we were rehearsing that song we'd have to we obviously played it over and over again to try and iron things out before going to the studio and John would always be you know Papa giving it metal face and you know trying to you know get into it uh, whereas Stuart would just be there with his fag hanging out of his mouth just just doing his just playing what was required because he obviously thought, well, I just want to go home or whatever mm. but yeah no I think th- I think um, John contributed as much as as anyone else. I don't I, whether he wrote. As much pound for pound, um, I I wouldn't like to comment. But certainly, when on the million tour, he was yeah, he just did his thing, did his thing, and uh he did it well. He was, you know, I like. I think John's awesome. I wonder where he is now. I thought he, I think he moved to Canada or something. I don't know. I haven't seen him in yeah, years. Yeah, that's what Lovely I heard.
1: Guy. Yeah, that's what I heard. He seems to have dropped off the radar completely. And believe yeah, me, just- I think.
0: That- <laughs> what we do it? <laughs> yeah
1: well look i've tried to um see if he's on linkedin or something but i mean you know given the fact that he goes by well he's known as john but his name is jian and this sort of thing god knows where he's ended up and what he's doing but it seems to me like yeah. as though he's just left the music industry completely and he must be leading a, an everyday yeah. life like we are you know?
0: Yeah, know he was big into um like computing and it and stuff and i did hear a rumor that he was working in that realm uh possibly something to do with computer games i don't know but hey fair play to him nice guy he was always really cool to me he was always really cool to everyone Mm. um and i think he he did a tour with christian death after he left yes um like a, a a run around europe so yeah yeah lovely bloke yeah
1: there you go Hey, look, I'll finish by, by talking about Extreme Noise Terror. I mentioned up top I'm fascinated with your tenure in the group because it was this, for people who don't know, uh, Extreme Noise Terror, you know, this is a group that collaborated with KLF during the British Music Awards and stuff. They had an enormous impact there for a, for a very short period of time on the on the psyche, certainly the, the, the British psyche. Um, mm. a very subversive outfit. I love the group i've got to say and i've had a chat to barney about the album damage 381 which coincidentally you're on as well so barney is the singer everybody knows him as a singer for napalm death but he wasn't for a period of time he was actually the singer for extreme noise terror and phil Vane jumped yeah phil Vane jumped into napalm death and i remember when it happened thinking after diatribes i thought they'd and again sorry just to repeat myself I'd spoken to Barney about it because I wanted to know if the reaction to Die Tribes was so bad, because I remember the reaction to Die Tribes from Napalm Death had forced him out. And he, he more or less said, look, I wanted to keep on going the grind route, but the other guys wanted to do this Sonic Youth sort of influence yeah. music. And um and it and it may have put he didn't say whether it was or it wasn't, but I think the, the inference was clear that yeah, they they weren't really getting along and seeing eye to eye musically at the very least. He went into extreme noise terror. Terror, Phil Vane into um, Napalm Death, nothing happened with Napalm Death, but Extreme Noise Terror came out with this killer album that you're on, Damage 381. So what's your take on that episode of your musical
2: career?
0: Right, so I grew up going to ENT shows here in Ipswich as a young kid, literally I was at high school, we'd go to, you know, um, incredible bills back then, you know, Extreme Noise Terror, Bolt Thrower, Carcass, Napalm, Uh, so I literally grew up seeing, uh, you know, that was when they were proper, proper hardcore, UK hardcore punk. Mm. Um, so I, I can't remember how I, they rehearse, ENT used to rehearse at the same place that Cradle rehearsed, um, a studio called Springvale Studios on the outskirts of Ipswich. And it was, I think it was Rob again. Rob's like, oh, you know, uh, ENT are looking for a, for a drummer. I'm like, cool. So I went in. And I auditioned to, because obviously, of course I'm going to, of course I'm going to audition It's fucking extreme noise terror. Of course I am. (laughs) The first thing thing that I do when I I go in, I set my drums up. Did I use my kit? Yeah, I think I did. Yeah. Um, And the first thing that I see is a McDonald's carton on the floor. But it wasn't just discarded. It was there. Right. I'm like, "Um, what's, what's that about? You know, knowing their 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 history and their politics, mm. I was vegetarian for 19 years because I grew up with the hardcore scene. So mm. to go into an extreme noise terror audition and find a fucking McDonald's carton there, I was. I wanted to. I had some questions. So I'm like, uh, "What's what's that about?" And Dean, in his inimitable way, was like, "Oh, we don't give a fuck about any of that now." I'm like, "Okay, cool. I don't really care either." So <laughs> anyway, I. I, I I got the gig, um, and they were. I look back on that album with with fond memories because they're just the, it was it was just ridiculous. But as a as a as a drummer, I was doing an album on Earache Records, which I grew up. Some of my favorite albums are the classic Earache albums from you know the late eighties, early nineties. I literally, mm. yeah, absolutely. I was a Madness, Realm of of chaos, symphonies of sickness you know, mentally murdered, all the napalm stuff, I could go on for ages. That's literally my childhood. That is what I was that that's my terrorizer. That's my stuff. Um so to do an album on earache with a band that I grew up uh loving was a no-brainer. But the problem with that was um was that as it was Dean and Ali who were the main they were the band there. And there was a guy called Lee Barrett on bass. Mm-hmm. So Lee Barrett on bass, you say Lee Barrett to someone, people are like who? But Lee Barrett actually started Candlelight Records, signed Emperor, discovered Emperor, um, and toured with, mm. you know, took was, was the man who put together the Cradle and Emperor Fear of Black Metal Planet tour in this country. Mm-hmm. So he's, you know, that guy is responsible for, for giving Emperor to the world. So he was on bass. And the music that ENT were writing at that time was, it was just stuff that I was, to me, it was really out of date. It's fantastic that a a bunch of crusties like ENT were embracing it, but they really should have done it when Napalm did it Mm. 10 years before. You know, I remember some of the riffs that they were writing, and it was very, it was... (laughs) It was difficult for me to swallow because these were these were recycled carcass riffs that really didn't have much impact, in my opinion. And I think that they would have it would have served them better to have taken their original ethos and just given it a bit more of a modern sort of sound. Mm. So if you can imagine some of their early recordings, but with a with a more modern polished production, like Demonstrate at One's got. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, re- it was weird for me. And, of course, at that time, I was doing the Blood Divine thing, which was taking off slightly more, so I kind of had to uh, say, look, I, I can't do this anymore, I'm, you know. And it was, uh, it was never really, uh, you know, they were so all over the place in terms of, well, everything, um, that it was never really anything more than that. Uh, so, yeah.
1: Yeah. What was it like working with Barney?
0: Well, funny thing is, I, I, when we recorded Demonstrate One, I, di- I didn't, I didn't work, wi- work with Barney. The only time I did anything with Barney was um, when he came down to do the photos, the press photos. Oh, really? And he's a lovely bloke. He's a, yeah, That's the only time. Yeah. And, and the whole Phil thing was really weird because I remember Phil being around a little bit at the start of my... And then all of a sudden he was like, well, i got the napalm And I was like, well, cool, man, nice one. But I never really knew how that was going to work. Um, and I don't think, I don't think it worked out particularly well. And then Phil came back to the, God rest his soul. I love that guy. He was, he was a really, you know, such a, such a nice bloke and such a, you know, I don't know. He it was massive in the, in the, in the local scene, you know. And I think that it was never really destined to work out for, with him and Napalm or with Barney and ENT. It's it, the best way I can put it is like that. I mean, both bands literally swapped for a matter of months and then swapped back, mm. you know, it was weird. Uh, and Hey, i tell you what, even though I'm not a massive fan of the late and Napalm stuff, I saw them, I mean, it's years ago now because of COVID and everything, but we saw them with Obituary and I've seen them a couple of times. And fucking barneys is awesome on stage. He's really good. He's really found his own niche, mm. you know. Uh, and when he joined the band after Lee Dorian and Bill left, as a fan at the time, I was like, "Well, oh, what the fuck is this? Um, but he's really carved out his own niche. And Napalm are a real force in themselves. You know, they've always been a force, but you know, Harmony Corruption and it just, I don't know, it just didn't really work at the time. But they've they've ploughed through it and, yeah, yeah played to him. Yeah, again, I was around back then and I
1: remember the, uh I thought the album was great but the band members didn't really like it and Barney actually told me that he, he wouldn't change anything but, yeah, it wasn't something to ho- hoist up on a flag there. But the other thing about Barney is he was in Benediction as well. So Yeah, I fucking
0: love that. I love Subconscious Terror. That's yeah. probably my favourite my favorite Barney Alpert. You know, it's a horrible production. Mick Harris produced it, and it's a, it's you know, it's a shitty cover. And a, uh, but yeah, you know, that to me, that's that's my childhood. You know, what I mean, mm. I remember, you know, brilliant.
1: You got brilliant. you got to have albums that but, sound like that from back then, though. That that was the era.
0: Yeah, you did. Mm. and 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 I think I think the whole the, the the reason it was a the whole Napalm thing was difficult for me because when I first heard Napalm Death and the Peel Session uh, and then Scum. And that classic lineup, um, for them to all of a sudden change overnight and start wearing, you know, death shirts and uh, uh, joggers yeah. and to go to Morrisound Sound yeah. and have that real polished, horrible production, but a real polished sound. It's a complete antithesis of what they were, and it was difficult for me to swallow at the time. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, they're not a Morris Sound they band had to- at all,
1: but, yeah, they did yeah, want- once.
0: Not- but mass appeal madness followed harmony corruption, and that's killer. Yeah, that was that was that was Barney finding his feet. Mick Harris, you know, raw production, a bit more of the old style, um, and that I thought that was fantastic.
1: Look, I'll finish up by asking you. Look, you you really were. We've talked about your tenure in two very prominent, very important bands. It must be said. You talked about you discussed too how you live within the proximity. All these magnificent musicians—you're one of them, mate. But do do you look? Thanks. Do you look back, and do you feel as though there was a sliding doors moment where life could have unfolded very differently?
0: Uh, Not really. Not really. I made. I don't have any regrets. I made the choices that I made um, at the time, uh, and I. I i don't i don't have any regrets i I remember i mean not really metal re- related but the band that I was playing with prior to my retirement it was just there was just so much bullshit you know with record companies and jour- no offense journalists and all of this um sh- charade of bullshit I just thought i've had enough and I, what I wanted to do i wanted to be I wanted to be normal. I wanted, my brother would phone me up and say, look, we're going down, going into town. And I couldn't because I had to go to London to rehearse or something. And I really hated the whole uncertainty and how mm. disheveled my life was. I wanted to just have a base. I wanted to start a family. I wanted to be normal and have, go to work, come back, get paid. I, wa- I genuinely craved that. Um, and that's exactly what I did. I had I had a couple of children. Um, and I've, you know, I, I, enjoy my, my work, which obviously takes up most of my time now. Um, and, and I'd made that conscious decision and I, I, um, you know, and the other records that we haven't talked about is the Denonicus records, which have just been remastered and re-released mm-hmm. by Andy LaRock from, uh, King Diamond, which blew my mind. Um, so that, those are two records that I really hold in high esteem because that's, they're ridiculously heavy and I, at the time of making them i was like oh this is just so fun. i can't get my head around it but looking back now <clears throat> blows my mind but yeah so to, to answer your question no i i don't really believe in any of that i think that if i'd have um there's a chance i could be uh Still playing in bands and being successful, but there's also a very high chance that I'd still be playing in bands and just plugging away, trying to work out where my next paycheck was coming from and doing anything that would come my way. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But with the, sorry, with the Dononicus albums, um, I, I can certainly see that it's an entry in your your your, your catalogue, if you like, or your your resume. But Andy LaRocque, that's a pretty serious person to have come along and actually do some, some work with you. How did all that happen?
0: Buck knows. Uh, we did those albums uh, at the turn of the century, so 2000 and, 2000 and 2001, mm-hmm. I think, or might have been ninety-nine. I don't know. But I literally, um, Marco messaged me and said, hey, look, they're all being re-released. Andy LaRocque is remastering them all, repackaged new covers, Everything's on Spotify now and Apple Music. Um, and yeah, good, fantastic. Because like I said, I, I look back on those records as being real. I've really, because um, the way they were recorded was very unique because he would send over a cassette of his guide guitars to a click track. Yep. And luckily I would make stuff up over the top of them. So I would write all of the parts. There's a couple of parts where he would say, right, that bit's silent play on that part Uh, apart from that I was left to my own device and then I'd fly out to Holland set my drums up play to the same tape in the studio Mm. and he would be a surprise he would be surprised because he would be he'd have an idea of what I would be playing but of course I didn't play what he thought I was going to play and then excuse me the uh music took shape from there so it's really unique way of recording yeah um, so yeah, uh, I look back on those with with fond memories, and I think that they're they're definitely the, that's definitely the darkest music I've ever been involved in. So mm.
1: glad to hear it's on Spotify. If it's not on Spotify these days. Uh, you're basically hidden. Um, yeah, um,
0: that's the other. So, sorry to sorry to bang on, Andrew, but that's the other thing. I mean, nowadays, in my day, it was a case if you do a demo, you send it to a record company, you get signed, you go from there. Nowadays, you need a You know, record companies won't even give you a look in unless you've got X amount of followers on Facebook or or a TikTok following. You know, that to me is just such a, I don't want to sound like an old man, but it's such an alien world. And I can't imagine uh, being a struggling musician in 2022. I, You know... It's. I mean, it's great from a band's perspective in the sense that you can own everything and put it all on your website and sell it and make all of the profit. But you've got to get people to your website. You've got to get people to those gigs. So it's. I, I can't even imagine doing it nowadays. It's, you know, it's really like that
1: as a writer, mate. You know, the uh, publishers won't talk to you unless you've got a five-figure following yeah. on Facebook. It's fucking stupid you like well how, how on earth, I mean this isn't the be all and end all plus I can go and buy for about for about 200 dollars I can go and buy 10,000 followers you idiots I mean there's so
0: many ways exactly. of gaming the system but I just don't do it I couldn't be bothered what's the point but you know what I, yeah what's the point but I think the way you're doing it um will prevail and I and I think that if I was a uh still a musician I think that I would do it the way that you know the old school way, and I think that if it's any good, and if there is some substance to it, substance to it, it will come good. You know, I I I I think that there is still, you know, some integrity in being, you know, just doing your own thing for your for your own reasons. You know, because like you say, you could you could. If you did do that, you wouldn't be rep- what you would be. You wouldn't be representing you. You know, you'd just be this facade, and it's it's, it's not about that. You know.
1: I think you've just been smart too, if I can make that observation. I mean, what you've talked about, I, you could be talking about my life there, where you made a decision that you wanted a proper job, you wanted to have a family. Yeah. These are all things that I had listed as goals when I was a young fella. Thank God I've been able to go down that route. The the idea yeah. that you can everybody can sort of lead the life that Lemmy lived, because we all know intimate details about Lemmy's life these days, courtesy of the amount that Buddy Rolling Stone and those fuckhead magazines have written about him. Yeah, um, and you, but- you read it and think. Mate, that's a one-off that guy was cast from a very different die the rest of us mate if you're Absolutely. not careful you'll end up on welfare and potentially in a position where you can't recover financially Absolutely. and as jordan peterson talks about there's the, the spiral into hell um you know broken relationships you know not proper not having proper relationships broken relationships with spouses not having proper relationships with your own children and god knows whatever else is going on in your own family but you've got to put in as much effort into that often as you do into the music it's not just about the music
0: no it is it isn't it's it's um <clears throat> and like i said earlier about the whole black metal thing coming into the into the um the scene that was something that i couldn't relate to and, and music changes all the time. Um, so to having to, if, you know, looking at it from Dan's point of view, again, I mean, they've always kind of done their own thing, but they've still had to recognize current trends and, you know, what was, you know, they had to keep current Mm -hmm. and that whole aspect of keeping, um, up with the times was something that you know I always kind of struggled with and I think that that would be that would be such pressure you know um and like i said there's something to be said for stability uh and once i mean the, the main thing that appealed to me when i was a musician was was seeing the world and and touring mm. um but touring's fantastic when there's a certain budget behind the band that you're playing with. If there's no budget behind the band, you play, it's fucking shit Yeah, because you live in a band and, you know, nobody's looking after you. Um, but when it's slightly a higher level than that, it's, it's fucking wonderful. But yeah, no, like I say, I, I, um, I needed to, to be, I needed stability. I wanted to, it's almost like, right, that phase of my life's done. Now, what, Let's do something else now, you know. And sometimes I sit here, and sometimes I see uh, bands come around, and I think, you know, I should, I'd love to get into something again. So I'm never saying never. I'm never, I'm not, uh, I would, I'm not adverse to doing something again, but it has to be right. And, and this time, it's on my terms. Mm. Uh, but what that looks like, I don't know. If it, if it looks like anything, I don't know. Yeah, well, we'll at, see. at least
1: you've done all the, the the right things with your life, you know. Um, You know, I can yeah. tell you, mate, I've spoken to musicians who have a lot of deep regrets that they're in their hour, you know, their late 40s, I'm 44, but, you know, I can I can sense it, mate. I'm just glad that I've made the decisions that I have made. A lot of the musicians, yeah, totally. you know, spending time in pubs and on tour vans and stuff is pretty cool when you're in your 20s, maybe your 30s, but when you're in your 40s it's just, and you don't have anything to fall back on and you want that. Exactly. And that's something that you want, mate. I mean, it's very hard to sort of start over again when you're in your
0: late 40s. I mean I can't imagine I can't imagine not having as you said you know something to fall back on I like um, going out and having a good time and doing whatever going to gigs but I love the fact that I'm so oh, lovely I'm going to go home and mm. you know if I'm, if I'm up past 10 you know I don't I like to go to bed I like to I've got my routine I've got you know if I've got a day off then I I like my afternoon naps you know I'm a simple guy you know I'm not I've got no interest in in uh, you know, doing any of that now. So it's, it's weird, but, but yeah, no regrets. I mean, I, I just think, and it's, it's difficult when you talk to people, certainly people that aren't in the scene or aren't, um, into, uh, you know, just know the know the cradle thing and they can't get their heads around it. And they think that, you know, why would you not? It's like, well, it's really not as easy as that. It's not like we're all on fucking... You know, x amount of pounds a month. It's, it really isn't like that, and they don't take into take into they don't factor in all the shit that comes with playing in the band. They don't they don't factor factor any of that in. So yeah, they just see the name, think that it's you know all glamour and fucking champagne and cocaine. It's it's really not. It's just bollocks. <laughs> yeah, well, well Paula
1: Lender's the one who has the, the story around this sort of stuff. Maybe not the cocaine and champagne, maybe, but maybe not. <laughs> but the, the, the whole idea of staying in a band for as long as what he did and then getting to the end of that road and then, you know, looking at your options, that's something that when he's ready to tell that story, I've told him, listen, whether you want to do it, because I write books. So mentioned mm. um, whether you want to do it via a biography, ghostwriting, help you ghostwrite a biography, or you want to do it more of a documentary style, or just even a whole series of conversations like what we're doing here. In addition to the one we've already yeah. done, I'd love to help him with that because he has the story that I think a lot of young musicians. I mean, I'll preface what I'm about to say by saying I simply cannot understand if it was what if it was sort of on the way out when you and I were coming through, and you actually did it. Okay, and I tried to do it. Um, the whole idea that you could join a band, get a deal, boom, you're in the next Led Zeppelin, this sort of thing, or the next Faith No More or whatever it might be. Um, it was on the way out when you and I were coming through, but in 2022 to hear people talk like that, and they're still out there, 19, 20, mm. up to 25 years of age. My only advice for them is, Jesus Christ, you better grow up and you better grow up quick, son, because the music yeah. industry
0: isn't really an industry, it's a meat grinder. Yeah, it is. It is, absolutely. And it's even more of a meat grinder now um, because, uh, I, do, do you know what, though? I mean, I would like, it, it would, I'm just trying to think of all the tools that bands have got at their disposal now. You know, Instagram, TikTok. I'm just trying to think that it's
1: yeah fuck that seriously fuck that these days you know? all of the bands have all of these tools available that's the i even find it as a podcaster i mean i i've got killer conversations mm. with a killer conversation now with yourself to share with people that cuts through because nobody else is really doing a lot of that stuff but even yeah, even absolutely. even my conversations with other members of bands whether it be megadeth or what have you, you look at the numbers they're not there because these people, they yeah. go on these press junkets and boom, it's... And I mean, I'm not even... I was, yeah, and look, I can tell you, I've earned nothing doing this. I'm not trying to earn money doing it. It's purely for the love and for the passion no. uh, that I do this. Yeah. You know, I've got a job, like we say, uh, in the day and day job. And, you know, I'm a scout leader and all of this sort of stuff as well. So I've got a pretty well-rounded life, but this is my hobby. Um, yeah. And I think people have got to sort of look yeah. at it that way. And I think your, your, your tale... Above any, uh, more than anybody else in the group that I've spoken to, sort of highlights
0: that. Yeah, um, I, just, I Yeah, it's it's if you, yeah, I mean, I. The ideal is to have the the full time job, the revenue, uh, and then do the band stuff on top of that. But that's difficult to do when you're twenty something. And then then one takes over the other because you can't go into work and say, you know what, I can't come in next week because we've got three or four dates to do. It doesn't work like that. So either you need to be slumming it at home with your parents as a youngster or you need to be, you know, financially equipped to do it. Um, so, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's, it's 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 one of those things, though, isn't it? I mean, like I say, I'm I'm, I'm grateful for the things that I've done. I'm grateful for the experiences that I've had, mm. um, and the people that I've met, you know. But yeah, it's, and I, I like this, things like this are fantastic because I like talking about it, you know. And I think that there's loads of um, there's so many different little tales, kind of springtime... You know, thank you for the opportunity you know to, to speak
1: about. Well, thank you very much, brother. Uh, truly appreciate it. No worries. Thanks, bro. Nice one. Been a pleasure. Have a good day. You too, mate. No worries. Enjoy your evening. Well, there he is, ladies and gentlemen. Was Sargentson. I really appreciate that he was willing to have a chat for the show. If you like that one, and if you're unfamiliar, go across to scarsandguitars.com. Click on the link at the top of the page. This is Cradle of Filth Conversations, and you can hear me talk to Stuart Anstis, Nick Barker, Greg Moffat, a.k.a. Damien Grigori, Lindsay Schoolcraft, Danny Filth, Richard Shaw, Ben Ryan. Something else, I've written a book, Scars and Guitars, Volume 1, Conversations from the World of Heavy Metal and Beyond. And yes, the members of Cradle of Filth do feature amongst its pages click on the link in the banner if you'd like to try a sample go to a marketplace and download download a sample and if you do complete the purchase do hit me up because i want to thank you personally on that note here's some more information about the book but before i'll let you go my name's andrew Mackay smith and i'm the host of the scars and guitars podcast series thanks so much for tuning in
0: this is Eric Ratan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. I've been the host of the
1: Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal, and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume One, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return.
2: You know, if you're a a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a
1: band with partners. Never. Yeah, wise words. There, uh, sage advice, mate, for anybody.
2: Don't no, ever, because I I can't go do cold chamber right now unless I get others involved.
1: Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment.
2: I think the staying power of the the fans and the staying power of the I, of the songs. You know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs.
1: Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms it. Yes. Playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Gear write a book? Pa from Sabaton gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If, uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction... To George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silences comments when they throw shade at then President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this
2: egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, I, I just, I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place.
1: And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with Sepultura. Percussive Overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldiner.
0: Chuck was always, um, you know, he was, he was. Very, you know, very open-minded, and and he was
2: into having his his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for for the best stuff that they had.
1: Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five, and Manson gave me that name,
2: and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band, and, and learned a lot.
1: And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume One, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favorite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume One is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book.